Hello, and welcome to the Church on the Hill podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to join us live this Sunday at 500 Sands Drive in San Jose, California. Visit churchonthehill.com for service times and directions, and also to learn more about connecting, growing, and serving at Church on the Hill. Now, please enjoy our sermon at Church on the Hill. We are here on the last day of 2023, and I know 2023 has been full of a lot of things for a lot of people, and there's been good and bad and everything in between, Um, but we get to kind of close it out today. We get to kind of put the bow on it and be done with it, and we are incredibly close. We're like half a day away from bringing in a new year, and so we get to share together and we get to celebrate. And part of what I want to do to celebrate is just as we close out the year, I just want to give one last gift And so this morning, we're going to talk about David and Bathsheba. Yeah, see? You guys get it. You're laughing. Laughter is the response that was supposed to happen. And the reason why that's what was supposed to happen is because this interaction is what Scott gave to me a few weeks ago when he was like, hey, Josh, you're talking on December 31st about David and Bathsheba. And I was like, ha, funny. You make jokes. Usually dad jokes. Um, And then he was like, no, seriously. And I was like, oh. So now we've bonded because we've been able to laugh about that together. Because that's actually what's happening and that's the truth. Is Scott was like, hey, I'm going to be out on the 31st, so I need you to teach. And we are continuing in our David series. And it just so happens that we're talking about David and Bathsheba. Which is the point where you guys realize, oh, he's telling the truth right now. Uh, Yeah, you know, it just fits because New Year's night, people do some things, make some bad choices, different things. We're going to address those right now. Nope, no one wants to laugh at that. Too real? Too soon? What is it? Um, But yes, that is what we get to do, and I actually am excited uh, because I think God has something for all of us in the midst of this. And the more I actually studied this and the more I read into this, the more I realized, man, I think God's speaking to all of us, not just David in this situation. And so though it is a little different, though it is kind of a funny way to close out the year, my hope and my prayer is that God's going to do something in the life of each of us in the midst of this story and draw some things out of it. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to get started. Lord, I thank you for the way that you use things that don't seem like opportunities to be opportunities. Lord, I thank you for uh, just always being at work in our lives. I thank you for every single person who's here, Lord. Um, for every single person who decided to come on New Year's Eve day and to be a part of this and to be able to worship you and to gather together. Lord, I just ask that you would use me to present your word and to be able to connect with people's hearts, Lord. Lord, I thank you so much for this gift and for this opportunity and for everyone here. Amen. So as I told you guys, actually, no, we'll start with some trivia, okay? Because that sounds like more fun. So, Some of you might be history buffs. I don't know. But there's a saying in history or a slogan in history, and I'm going to ask you guys to complete it. It goes like this. History is written by... There it is. I heard a few of you. History is written by the victors, or history is written by those who won. And the concept is... That in every situation, there's always two sides, right? And, or two or more sides. And everyone always has their perspective. You guys understand this incredibly well if you have a spouse. 
because you've been in situations where something takes place, and then one spouse is like, yeah, this is what happened, and the other spouse is like, no, this is what happened. And both of you are like, are you crazy? This is what happened. This is why we all enjoy that commercial so much that's the challenge flag where they throw the red flag and they're like, let's see what actually took place. Because we've all been there. But the idea is there's always two sides of a story. And then beyond the two sides of the story, someplace in the middle, there's the truth. Right? And if you have some wisdom, you've been there with your spouse where you're like, no, that's absolutely not what happened. There's no way you could believe that. And then things get resolved and you move down the road a little bit and you look back at it and you're like, "Uh, maybe my side wasn't 100% factual. Like, maybe it was a little more in the middle, right? We've all been there. We've done it with friends. We've done it with spouse. It's how we do things. We see it from our perspective and we both have our side, but in the middle is actually the truth of what took place. In this comment, history is written by the victors is kind of the same thing to say, if you're the one that wins, if you want the one that controls the information, if you're the one in control of what gets out and what doesn't, then you tend to write yourself in a pretty good light. You tend to not put the bad stuff and you tend to focus on the good stuff, right? And this causes huge issues, and people talk about the injustice of it, and people say that it's terrible, and they think it's such a horrible thing that you could write in a way that only paints the others as the bad and you as the good, and then we do it ourselves, and we call it social media. Right? Yeah, you're like, I don't. Yes, you do. And everyone says, no, I paint a real picture of myself. I'm legit. I do, I do what's really going on. And then you look at your social media stuff, and it's like a 60 to 1 ratio. It's like good, 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 one bad. And then you guys get it. So the point that I'm getting at with all this is this. If we write ourselves as the good, if we're in control of the information, then why did David give us this story? Because let's remember who David was. David is far and away the greatest Jewish king. It is not even close. Of all the Jewish kings that were there, there's David, and then there's a long gap, and then there's everybody else, and it's not even close. David leads Israel through what's called the golden era. David is possibly the greatest warrior that Israel's ever seen. His ability and skill on the battlefield is probably the greatest of any warrior we get to hear about. So in their entire history, he is their greatest fighter. He's incredibly handsome. He is a poet. He is a musician. He is the one that when he was fairly young, killed a lion and a bear. And the way we find out that he killed a lion and a bear is because he's petitioning to kill Goliath. He goes out to the army, and when the entire army of grown adult warriors is not willing to fight Goliath, he's like, I'll fight Goliath. And Saul's like, you should not fight Goliath. You're just a boy. And he's like, I've killed a lion and a bear. And Saul's like, well, no one else wants to, so sure, go die. And then David goes out there, and he takes, you guys know the story, boom, Goliath is dead, right? David is this hero over and over again. He's the stud. He's the legend. He's the one that everyone wanted to be. He's the one in control of all of it. He is the king that is the best king they've ever had. And to put the cherry on top, 
Scripture refers to David as a man after God's own heart. And so we get all of this about David, and he's very much the one who's in control. He is very much the king. He is very much the one who is ruling. Yet we get this story of David and Bathsheba, and we have to ask the question, why do we get this? Before we answer the question, though, of why it's in there, let's talk about what actually takes place. And there's a lot of text here. So if you have your Bibles, pull it out. It will be on the screen behind me. Um, But follow along and make sure to... I'm going to skip around because I'm not going to straight read through two chapters, but we're going to be going through a lot of content. So buckle up. Here we go. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. And it says this, In the spring at the time when kings go off to war... David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. There's the first problem. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, where's David? He's in Jerusalem. David is the best warrior they have. He is skilled at fighting. He is skilled at war. He is skilled at advising. The battlefield is not a stranger to him. Where would David be a huge asset to his people? On the battlefield. Where are kings supposed to be? On the battlefield. Where is David? Chilling in the palace. Not where he's supposed to be. Red flag number one. Then it says this. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Now, there it is, right? This awkward, tension-filled passage that's hard to make sense of because we sit there and we're like, what? And we don't get it. We're not in that time, and I'm not sure that if we were in that time, we would get it, but we would understand a lot more. But there's part of us that just goes, I guess this is just a, it's good to be the king back then? Like, you just do whatever you want. You walk out on your balcony and you see someone and you say, oh, that looks nice. Bring her to me. And there's this question that he asks of the servant of, explain to me, who is this person? And for us, we get this title, and it seems like it's just a description of who this woman is. Her name's Bathsheba. Bathsheba. Her dad is Eliam, and she's married to Uriah the Hittite. That's her title. That's her description. But here's what we find out. It's so much more than that. To be honest, it's so much worse than that. When the servant responds with, that is Bathsheba, David would not be hearing that name for the first time and going, oh, don't know her. There's reason to believe that Bathsheba actually would have grown up at the palace. Like she would have been very much known by David. And the reason why I say that is this next part that is incredibly convicting for David is when it says, the daughter of Eliam. Eliam is a very specific person. You guys know who he is? He's one of David's mighty men. 
David had a group of guys that was with him from the very start. When, we, when Scott talked a few weeks ago about running from King Saul and being stuck in a cave, and he and his men are in this cave, and then he goes up and he cuts the robe off of Saul, and he lets him know, huh, I could have killed you. The guys that are with him are his mighty men. It's a group of less than 40 people that have been with him almost his entire life. They have served him his entire life. They have been his closest companions. They have been fighting with him from the very, very start. This is not some random person. This is Eliam, who you've been with, who's been giving his services and who's been risking his life for you for years and for years and for years. And this is his daughter. And the reason why her house is so close to your palace is because she is in the inner circle. Her family is in the inner circle, and that's why she's close enough. And it again goes to prove just how connected this family really was to David. This is not just a title or a description. Oh, this is who this is. And to make matters even worse, when it continues on and says, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah is a Hittite, which means he was not Jewish, which means he was converted. If he was converted, there's an extremely high probability he was converted by the most powerful person of the Jewish religion at that time, David. If he wasn't converted by David, he was for sure influenced by David. And David was at least closely related to someone who helped convert him. To make matters even worse, Uriah is also one of David's 30 mighty men. He is a part of the small, small group. He is a part of the guys that have been fighting with David, with Elam, and to make matters even worse, Elam giving his daughter to Uriah means that Uriah was a pretty stand-up righteous guy, and they've spent a bunch of time together, which is why Elam would have qualified him as well or like good enough to take his daughter. David is not getting just a small description of a random person. David is getting a red flag, a red banner, a red wall. He's getting a servant that's like, David, you've got to be kidding me. Don't do this. This is a bad choice on steroids. Don't do it. And then what happens? David does it. She conceives. And so David sends a word to Joab, the leader of the army, says, bring Uriah the Hittite back because he's got a plan, right? And what he's going to do is he's going to send Uriah home and then Uriah is going to go be with his wife. And when she gets pregnant, oh, look, Uriah and Bathsheba made a baby and it just looks like David. Oops. That's his plan. But it doesn't work. Why? Because Uriah did not go home. And he says, David goes to Uriah and he says, why didn't you go home? And Uriah says this, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. That's convicting. David, what are you doing? I'm hanging out in the palace. Uriah, what are you doing? I won't go home because the men are out there fighting. I'm not going to indulge in those things because my men and my people are out there fighting. I'm not going to go be with my wife. I'm not going to do those things. And what Scripture is doing is it's giving us this incredible opportunity to compare and contrast two men making very different choices. 
And the other thing I want to point out is this. David is with Uriah. David had all the opportunities in the world to confess to Uriah what was taking place and to be honest with him with what had gone on. But he chooses not to. Instead, things get worse, and David decides, you know what I'm going to do? Instead of just having him come or go home to his wife, I'll try to get him drunk and then get him to go home with his wife. So he invites him back to dinner. He gets him drunk, and he sends him back out. And you know what happens if Uriah, Uriah decides not to go home again? And what we see from Scripture in this passage is that a drunk Uriah has more morality and more righteousness in him than David is choosing to have at this time. And Scripture is painting this picture of who David is choosing to be at this time, and it is not good. And there's something else that I want to point out. David makes a bad choice, right? But I'm sure David justified this choice. He justified these different things. And what probably was part of his thinking was, it's just one thing. I'm the king. It'll be fine. And it's amazing how much we can tell ourselves something, but the truth is when we tell a lie or when we choose evil, it always seems to stack and breed more evil. We think it's going to stand alone. We think we can tell a lie and just have it be there isolated by itself, but it almost never works out that way. We have to stack and add more and lie more and be more evil and do these things to continue to build on this lie that we first created. And we see this starting here. Then it goes on. Uriah decides not to go home. And so it says, in the morning, David, this is verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. David, how cold-blooded can you be? You know that Uriah is so righteous, he's not going to read this letter. So you literally put a letter in his hands that says, kill the person carrying this letter, take it to your commander, and he does it. So it goes to the commander and he's killed. And then they get the report. Sorry, guys, I have a cold. I know that's an annoying sound. They get the report and then it comes back and David's me- or the messenger comes back to David And he says, Uriah the Hittite's been killed. And this is the message that David sends back in verse 25. He says, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Press the attack against the city and destroy it and encourage Joab. This is one of his closest companions. One of the guys that's fought with him his entire life, fought for him his entire life. And he dies in battle, and his response is, oh, well, the sword kills one one day and kills another one the next. And it just shows how callous and how messed up his heart has become in the midst of this evil situation. And then it goes on and says, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And then we get this at the end of verse 27. It says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And there it is. At the end of the chapter, the very last word we get, the first time we see the Lord in this whole passage is when it says, what David did displeased the Lord. 
And here's the response, starting in chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and grew it up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come in. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against this man, and he said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over, because he did such a thing and had no pity." David's enraged, right? Not in my kingdom, there's no way in the, in the, no, not one of my people, not, no, there's no way this is allowed to happen. There's no way an injustice like this should be able to take place. But what David doesn't realize is that he's completely blind. David has no clue what Nathan's doing, and he's enraged about this injustice. He's enraged that something like that would happen. And then Nathan says to David in verse 7, says to David, David, you are the man. David, you're the one that did this. David, that thing you're so enraged about, it was you. David, that evil messed up thing that you say is so wrong that the person should have to pay four times and die, which also they can't die and then pay four times. So you must be pretty angry. But David, that person's you. And then it goes on, and it essentially, Nathan tells David, David, God has given you everything, and yet you've turned your back on him. And then it gives this kind of consequence of what's going to come. You guys can read it for yourself. And then in verse 13, we get this important change point, and it says this. It says, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And the blinders fall off, and David finally gets it. He finally realizes his atrocity has been known. It's come to the light. And he owns it and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replies, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die, but because, you, because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. And it closes out this story. And it's this heavy, crazy, weird story that seems to make no real sense. And it takes us back to the start when we say, okay, if you're in control of all the information and you're the king, why is this here? Why did you include this? What are we supposed to see in this? And I think the answer is this, or I think one of the answers is this. I think what we have to realize is when Nathan says, because David, you were the man, I think Nathan's talking to all of us. Nathan's talking to you. He's talking to me. He's talking to every single person in this room because the truth is we really like to create these boxes where we go, there are good people and there are bad people. And the good people do good things and the bad people do bad things and that's how life works. And the truth is, life doesn't work that way. 
We like to act like life works that way because it makes it convenient and it makes it clean. But the truth is, you are very much capable of being the good person and the bad person. I am capable of sin and not just small sin. I am capable of catastrophic, significant sin. You are capable of catastrophic, significant sin. And the truth is, you have sinned and you will sin again. You've failed and you've failed significantly and you will fail and you will fail significantly again. And it's really easier for us to write ourselves as the righteous person in the story. As we read scripture to go, I am the one who's redeemed. I am the righteous. I am the peer. I am the Uriah, the Hittite. But the truth is we're a lot more David than we like to own. Every single one of us has things that we don't want people to find out. Every single one of us has things that we're ashamed of where we go, oh, I wish that wasn't there. That we get so angry at other people and we get so outraged and we get so frustrated. We're like, how could anyone ever do that? And we're completely blind to the fact that we've done it ourselves. We look at people and we're like, how could they choose not to forgive and be so bitter and so just evil and mean? And then we turn and look in the mirror and we go, oh man, I'm holding on to stuff too. I'm treating people the same way. I do the same thing that I'm calling out in other people. And what we have to realize is we're not the righteous one in the story. When Nathan says to David, you're the man, he's talking to all of us. And I think what's so important about this is this. We have to understand that we have to actually forgive ourselves. The most important thing we see from David at this point is this. He's a train wreck. Like, it doesn't get much worse than what David did. You took an innocent girl, you pulled her up to your, like, to your castle, you did what you wanted, you had her husband killed, you did all those different things. Why do we have to hear this story? Why couldn't you just be like a liar? Because God's displaying something in this story, and what he's displaying is this. There is no sin on this earth that God has not overcome. There is no sin man has created or man has been a part of that God cannot redeem. There is nothing that we can do that is beyond the redemption of God. And we need to grab onto that and we need to understand when God says you're forgiven, you're forgiven. Not kind of forgiven or forgiven if or forgiven maybe or forgiven if it's not that bad. Full forgiven. So you need to remember that you are David, but you also need to remember more than that, you're forgiven. Fully forgiven. The second thing is this. We need to remember that when we see others in their sin and in their mistakes, that should not be what defines them for us. It's become something in our world where when you mess up or when you fall short, that's it. That is who you are. You're done. It's over. 
And God looks at that and goes, not in my world. Not in my kingdom. You fail, you mess up, you fall short, I forgive. And God's forgiven it. But we need to be that for other people too. When we find out the mistakes they've made, when we see how people have train wrecked things, when we see how they've messed up, we need to be people that choose to forgive. And we're only going to be those people if we understand we are not the righteous one in the story. We're the sinner too. We've all fallen short. And when we see our own brokenness, it gets a lot easier to extend grace and love to other people's brokenness. So we need to own our own brokenness. And what we need to deeply understand is this. The man in this story, David, who fell so short and who messed up so bad, is still referred to as a man after God's own heart. And what we have to wrestle with, and the second question I want us to ask this morning is, how is it possible that with what David did, and there is no covering what David did. There's Sometimes you'll hear a scholar talk about, oh, well, Bathsheba was tempting him. and No, she wasn't. This story has nothing to do with Bathsheba and her actions. It's about David and him falling short and his atrocious sin. There is no way around it. This is David and David's mistake alone. So how is it possible that that man gets called a man after God's own heart? There's a few things that stand out. The first one is this. He fully owns it. Nathan says, David, you are the man. And David says, I have sinned against the Lord. He doesn't make up an excuse. He doesn't say, but you don't understand. He doesn't pull the Adam and Eve card and go, well, they made me do it, or well, this was happening, or you don't understand the stress of being the king. He just owns it. I've sinned against the Lord. I fell short. I messed up. And what I think stands out is this. If we own it, God uses it, and he frees us from it. When we own our junk and we're actually honest with what God's on, God uses it in other people's lives and in our lives, and he frees us from the bondage of that sin and that shame. But when we hide it, we make it about us, we try to preserve our identity, our look, our whatever, and God doesn't get to use it, and there's no freedom that comes with it. Let me say that again. When we hide it, God doesn't get to use it, and there's no freedom that comes with it. So step one that we learn from David is he fully owns it. Step two is this. He repents and even appreciates Nathan for confronting him. Like I said, there is no excuses. There is no, well, if you only understood, it's just I've sinned against the Lord. And then what we find out is David and Bathsheba get married. They end up having four boys and their fourth child's name. Anyone know some trivia bonus points? Nathan. He names him Nathan. The man that called them out. 
The man that said it's you, the man that convicted him, the man that called him and said, what you're doing is horrible and it's wrong. You are the evil person in the story. He learns so much from that. He understands God uses that so much. He allows God to refine him so much that his fourthborn is named Nathan to honor him. And the last thing that I think is probably the most important is this. What David gets is that who he is, his heart and his story is 100% fully and completely dependent on who God is. His story, his life, his identity, who he is, is not based on him. It's not based on his actions. It's not based on his accolades as a warrior. It's not based on any of that. It is based on God and God alone. And if we're going to have the right identity, if we're ever going to be people that get to, have, get to be said that our hearts are that of God, that we are trying to follow God, We have to understand that who we are is based on God and God alone. It's based on his character, his love, and his goodness, and not on us. And we get this incredible display of this in Psalm 51. And Psalm 51 is the psalm that David writes. And it says this. It says, a psalm of David. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I encourage you guys to later. It says, the psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be made whiter than snow. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David understands the most important part of our relationship with God, the most foundational piece of our connection to him And that's something that we often get wrong, and it's this. Our connection to God, our relationship with him, is through him and him alone. All we've brought to the equation is the sin that he chooses to forgive. But our standing and our identity and our connection and our future and all of that is because of who God is, his goodness, his love, his forgiveness, and his mercy. It's not based on us. So how can David have a reputation that says he's a man after God's own heart? Because he realizes that it's not about his heart. What he's done that makes him great is that he's taken his own desires, his own life, and he's laid it to the side and he's pursued God with his whole life and he's understood everything I am and everything I'm about is about you and you alone, God. And we see this in David from the time he was young. When he goes out to fight Goliath, it says this, 1 Samuel 17. It says, David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, 
The God of the armies of Israel, whom you defied, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcass of the Philistine army to the birds and to the wild animals. The whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And those gathered here will know that it is not by the sword or spirit that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. David gets it. David understands that his whole life is based on God. The good, the bad, the insignificant, the significant, the success, the failure, all of it, it belongs to God. And David is simply going, God, my life is just yours. God, my life is in your hands. Do with it as you please. I am your servant. And it's not David's accolades that get him the title of being a man after God's own heart. It's the fact that David has just given up his own heart. And for all of us in this room, if we want to be people, if we want to be a man or a woman after God's own heart, I think the incredible message that we get from David is this. It's not about what you've done. That's forgiven and gone. If God's going to use it, sure, be honest with it and own it and let him use it, great. But that's not where your identity lies. We are who we are and we stand where we stand because of God and God alone. And everything we are, the more we're going to become, the more like God we get to be is just to understand every single thing in my life, the success, the failure, the big, the small, all of it, God, is yours. It's all just a tool in your hand. This past week, I got an example of this that I thought was really cool. A friend of mine, uh, he and his wife, their whole family, they're going through a hard time. They have a like six-week-old baby, and the baby's in the hospital, and mom's in the hospital with the baby, so be praying for them. That would be awesome. But they're going to be in the hospital for at least 10 days. And so he is at home with their other three kids. And the other three kids, I think two of them are sick. And I was just like, dude, you got a lot going on. How are things? <laughs> How are you holding up? And it responds with James chapter 1, verse 2 to 3. Read it. But his response and his understanding is knowing The testing of his faith. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because life is about what God is doing. If we're going to have a heart after God, it has to be all about God all the time. And that's the point. That's what David understood. And I think the message for us to grab onto is our life is just a tool in God's hands and we have to relinquish it to him. It's not about the history and what you've done or whatever else. It's about him. Let me pray. Lord God, I thank you that everything is about you. Lord, I know for myself there is times where I have messed up and I have fallen short and there's things in my life I don't want people to see. But God, you don't define me by that. I'm defined by you, Lord. 
And that's the greatest gift I will ever receive. So thank you for that, Lord. And I ask that every single person in this room would come to an understanding of that. To know that our life is just a tool in your hands, that everything is an opportunity for you. We just have to give it to you, Lord. And it's not about us being better or trying to have a better heart. It's about getting rid of our old hard hearts and just giving our lives to you, Lord. Lord, may we be men and women after your heart who truly seek you. Love you, Lord. Amen.